From ABC News, this is 2020, the year in review. We are told that the president has, has all of the classic symptoms of coronavirus, or many of them. Join us as we look back at some of the year's top stories as they were originally reported. Please. Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman announcing third-degree murder and manslaughter charges against Officer Derek Chauvin. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. 2020, you gotta shake your head. How many of us are happy to see this year fading away? How many times have your Facebook or Instagram friends posted about wanting to forget about 2020? It has been a year of some ups, but arguably more downs and lots of division. This hour, we're gonna take you back to some of the biggest stories of the year told by our ABC News teams will relive those moments of suspense, tension, and even some joy that made up 2020. Let's begin with a story that shook up not just the U.S., but the world. It began with a late-night tweet. It was October 2nd. The campaigns were in full force. President Trump was trying to get re-elected, crisscrossing the country, and then it happened. The tweet that told the world he had contracted COVID-19. In that moment, nobody knew what it would mean for the Commander-in-Chief and at his age, how his body would respond. I take you back now to the beginning of our coverage on that night. President Trump has announced in a tweet that he and First Lady Melania Trump have tested positive for COVID-19. His doctor said the couple would quarantine inside the White House. It is a jarring diagnosis for the 74-year-old president who in remarks to a dinner Thursday night said the end of the pandemic was in sight. I want to get straight to our White House correspondent, ABC's Karen Travers. Karen, this follows the revelation that his close aide Hope Hicks had tested positive, but we're still not sure when. We are hearing that she did test positive uh, Wednesday night and has been symptomatic for COVID-19. I want to turn to ABC News medical contributor Dr. Jay Bott, who's joining us from Chicago, where he's an internist. The president's physician said the president was well, but uh, Dr. Bott, he didn't say whether he was actually experiencing symptoms. It's not clear from the note uh, from the White House uh, physician, president's physician, whether the president has had any symptoms at all. And so that'll be interesting to watch uh, in the next day. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well but we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will never forget it. Good afternoon. President Trump is being taken to Walter Reed Medical Center following his positive test for COVID-19. The White House said a moment ago the president remains in good spirits and has mild symptoms and will be working from the offices at Walter Reed for the next few days. Let's get straight to our White House correspondent, ABC's Karen Travers. Karen. Aaron, good spirits. That's a phrase that the doctor, the president's physician, wrote in his statement that came out about an, a little more than an hour ago. And that's what the White House press secretary is now saying. He is hard at work. Um, we're having to slow him down a little bit. He's been on the phone with Senator McConnell, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, been on the phone with Chief of Staff Mark Meadows talking about emergency declarations uh, for states um, as well as stimulus. So he's hard at work despite the mild symptoms. President Trump is now emerging from the White House to helicopter over to Walter Reed Medical Center 
is giving a wave to the assembled reporters. Before he left, the president received an experimental drug for mild symptoms, which included a cough and low-grade fever after he tested positive for the coronavirus. The White House insisted that Vice President Pence was transferred no power. The president remains in charge. We heard earlier today that Joe Biden, House Speaker Pelosi, and a number of others in official Washington uh, had been tested earlier today and most tested negative. There were a few positive tests revealed, including Senator Mike Lee of Utah and a few other perhaps low-level staffers at the White House. Good morning. President Trump's physician, Dr. Sean Conley, is briefing reporters from Walter Reed Medical Center, where the president spent the night with COVID-19. At this time, the team and I are extremely happy with the progress the president has made. Thursday, he had a mild cough and some nasal congestion and fatigue, all of which are now resolving and improving. Right now, all indicators are that uh, uh, that he'll remain off of oxygen uh, going forward. He has not received any supplemental oxygen? He's not on oxygen right now, that's right. Has he ever been on supplemental oxygen? He, right now, he is not on I oxygen. I know you keep saying right, right now, but should we read into the fact that he had been previously? Yesterday and today, he was not on oxygen. So he has not been on it during this his COVID treatment? He's, he's not on oxygen right now. I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. We've done an awfully good job of that. Good morning. We're about to hear from President Trump's doctor, Sean Conley, at Walter Reed Medical Center, where the president spent a second night following his COVID-19 diagnosis. We're going to be listening for clarity about the president's condition after some conflicting information. Moments after Dr. Conley said yesterday the president was doing great and improving, his chief of staff said the president was not on a clear path to recovery. As with any illness, there are frequent ups and downs over the course particularly when a patient is being so closely watched 24 hours a day. Over the course of his illness, the president has experienced two episodes of transient drops in his oxygen saturation. We debated the reasons for this and whether we'd even intervene. It was a determination of the team, based predominantly on the timeline from the initial diagnosis, that we initiate dexamethasone. I was trying to reflect the, the, uh, the upbeat attitude that the team, the president, that his course of illness has had. Um, I didn't want to give uh, any, uh, any information that might uh, steer the, uh, the course of illness in another direction. Um, and in doing so, uh, you know, it came off uh, that we were trying to hide something, which wasn't necessarily true. It's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. And it's a very interesting thing. And I'm going to be letting you know about it. His doctor said President Trump may not be entirely out of the woods, but after 72 hours in the hospital for treatment of COVID-19, he is leaving Walter Reed Medical Center, having met or exceeded discharge criteria. President Trump has now emerged from the doors of Walter Reed Medical Center, walking on his own down the flight of steps. He does have a mask on. He gave a Mr. brief President, thumbs up and waves sent? to assembled reporters. Thank you very much. Thank you. Do you think you might be a super spreader, Mr. President? 
Assembled reporters briefly shout questions which the president ignores as he walks over to his uh, SUV, gives a thumbs up for the short ride over to where Marine One is stationed. Dr. Jay Bott, an ABC News medical contributor, joins us from Chicago where he's an internist and based on the un information given by his doctors over the last three days, it isn't exactly clear how the president is doing. I think we can be encouraged by his uh, vital signs, which have improved and appear to be uh, stable and normal. Uh, but it's not clear, really, from the information we've gotten, how sick he really is. And given the treatment that he's gotten, which is, uh, appears to be far different from what average Americans would get. Karen, as you've suggested already, he's returning to a White House that increasingly has become a COVID hotspot. We have talked to many people within the West Wing who are telling us that they're nervous about going in. People are very concerned that they might be next. Marine One touches down now on the White House South Lawn. The president is home from the hospital after a 72-hour stay for treatment of COVID-19. Treatment like no other coronavirus patient has received in this country. A mix of therapies, including remdesivir, the antiviral drug that's authorized by the FDA for this use of an antibody cocktail that's an experimental drug along with dexamethasone a steroid that was given to him after uh, a drop in oxygen levels don't let it dominate you don't be afraid of it you're going to beat it we have the best medical equipment we have the best medicines all developed recently we're going back we're going back to work we're going to be out front as your leader i had to do that i knew there's danger to it but i had to do it I stood out front, I led. In the days that followed that coverage, President Trump would continue his recovery at home. Then only days later on October 10th, he held his first public event, taking off his mask and giving a speech to a crowd outside of the White House. Eight minutes and 46 seconds. That's the amount of time a police officer in Minneapolis had his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Before May 25th, George Floyd was not a household name. That would change when a video went viral showing police arresting Floyd for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy a pack of cigarettes. Floyd died, unable to breathe with that knee on his neck. He would prompt weeks of protests, violence, and calls for police reforms in the U.S. It became a political flashpoint during the election. Now I take you back to our coverage from many days of protests following the death of George Floyd. Please! Please, I can't breathe! Please, man! Please, man! Police say they received a call about a man who appeared to be under the influence trying to forge a check. When they arrived, they say the man resisted officers. Video shows an officer pinning the man down by putting a knee on his neck. After he was put into handcuffs, officers noticed he was in medical distress and an ambulance was called. The man died at the hospital. Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Fry says what happened was wrong at every level. What we saw was horrible, completely and utterly messed up. Protesters plan to gather Tuesday to demand justice for the victim and his family. About five minutes into the video, Floyd appears to lose consciousness. Bystanders urging police to check his pulse. Let me see a pulse. But the officer does not get up. More than seven minutes into the video, EMTs arrive on the scene and check his pulse. The officer's knee still on Floyd's neck. Police mistreatment of black people in focus again. Minneapolis police fired four officers in the killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man in custody in a forged check investigation who died while handcuffed 
bystander video showing an officer kneeling on Floyd's neck as he pleaded he could not breathe. Protests and demonstrations overnight in Minneapolis. Anger spilling over at the police-involved death of George Floyd, seen on video telling an officer holding Floyd's neck on the ground with his knee that he couldn't breathe. ABC's Kenneth Moten has more. Thousands of demonstrators taking to the streets, blocking intersections as police use tear gas to push back the crowd. Some people were seen throwing objects back at officers, vandalizing a police vehicle and smashing the front window of a police precinct. So many others marching peacefully, chanting, I can't breathe, while demanding justice for George Floyd. To all of those of you who are in pain, to those who are angry, to those who are afraid, I not only see you, I hear you, and I stand with you. We will get answers. We will seek justice. The officer with his knee on Floyd's neck is said to be 44-year-old Derek Chauvin, a Minneapolis police force veteran who reportedly was among several officers investigated after a fatal shooting in 2006. A grand jury later declined to indict. No peace. It started with a protest outside of a Minneapolis police precinct dispatch no audio captured by Broadcastify.com. We're taking rocks and bottles. After officers used tear gas to try and break it up, some people began ransacking a nearby Target store. Dozens of people seen exiting the store with arms full of electronics and clothing. Then a fire set at a nearby AutoZone store. Large amount of smoke inside of AutoZone. Minnesota Governor Tom Walz calling it an extremely dangerous situation and pleading with protesters to remain peaceful and safe. It was a violent night in Minneapolis. Large amount of smoke inside Last night's of demonstrations Auto against the police involved death of George Floyd involved fires, looting, at least one fatal shooting. ABC's Alex Perez is there. Officers are quickly losing control of unruly protests Protesters is spilling out from the intersection where George Floyd was stopped by police on Monday. Officers say one man was shot and killed amid the growing chaos in the streets. Crowds leaving multiple stores ransacked, eluded, or even set ablaze. The mayor of Minneapolis now requesting assistance from the National Guard as he joins the police in pleading for calm. There were protests in other cities as well, including Los Angeles, where Wesley Smith says... The police brutality that continues happening to black people over and over in this country is unacceptable, and we're sick of it. This is a special report from ABC News. We are getting word out of Minneapolis that the police officer, the arresting officer in the George Floyd case has been taken into custody by the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. Charged with third degree murder and manslaughter for the death of George Floyd. Hennepin County Attorney Michael Freeman also asked about possible charges against the three other officers involved at the scene. I'm not gonna speculate today of the other officers. They are under investigation. I anticipate charges but I'm not going to get into that. The criminal complaint said the now former officer kept his knee on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes 46 seconds, including nearly 3 minutes after Floyd became unresponsive. Prosecutors said police are trained that this type of restraint with a subject in a prone position is inherently dangerous. The criminal complaint said Floyd had underlying health conditions and potential intoxicants in his system that combined with the police restraint contributed to his death. The message was clear from police. Yet despite the curfew, the warnings, the heavy equipment, and the tear gas, the protesters continued to push the police back. Past the burned out buildings from Thursday night, many still smoking. People continue to break glass as they walk this path. A teenager asked me for a Band-Aid. He cut his hand on glass walking through the burned out police station. The situation is incredibly dangerous. Uh, the situation is, is fluid, it is dynamic. If you care about 
your community. You got to put this to an end. Overnight, outrage in the cities across the country over the death of George Floyd while in police custody. In Minneapolis, a protesters out in the streets for another night, despite a mandatory curfew, state officials saying they just don't have the resources to contain the protesters. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz announcing after another violent night of protests that included looting and buildings being set on fire. I'm authorizing and talking to General Jensen to fully mobilize the Minnesota National Guard, an action that has never been taken in the 164 year history of uh, the Minnesota National Guard. More than 2,500 National Guard members will be in place by this afternoon. The governor says he's also reached out to neighboring states and the Secretary of Defense for more resources. The people that are doing this are not Minneapolis residents. Minnesota officials say up to 80% of those causing the damage and destruction have come from outside of the state. John Harrington is Minnesota Commissioner of Public Safety. That little group that that started out uh, embedding themselves into George Lloyd's memorial service is no longer the little group. In an intelligence note obtained by ABC News, the Department of Homeland Security warned that domestic terrorists on the far right and the far left could exploit growing protests around the country to launch attacks on law enforcement and demonstrators. The note mentioned a white supremacist extremist telegram channel and cited followers to engage in violence and start a second civil war by shooting into a crowd. Many months after the protests around the store where George Floyd died in Minneapolis, still roads remain closed. And police departments nationwide are now dealing with smaller budgets and are making cuts as a result of demands by protesters. No doubt 2020 has been a rough year for so many, but there have also been a few high points, and one of them came on May 30th when the U.S. returned to launching humans into space from Florida. No longer having to rely on the Russians to get to the International Space Station, I was lucky enough to be in the anchor chair on that afternoon when the rockets lit and the SpaceX design capsule ferried two astronauts into orbit. Here now, take a ride with me back to that day. Well, it appears we are a go. Good afternoon. A new chapter in the history of U.S. space exploration is about to be written. Almost a decade after the U.S. launched the last manned flight to space minutes from now, if weather and engineering cooperate, the weather iffy right up to this point, the U.S. will return to manned launches here at home. The two astronauts on board today, Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley, they were driven to the launch pad in Tesla's. The Falcon 9 rocket they sit atop, named that for the Star Wars Millennium Falcon. But at the core, this is about safety and getting the U.S. back into the space game. ABC's Jim Ryan is with me here, and Jim, weather has been the continued big unknown today. Yeah, it still looks a little iffy. I think the last uh, estimate was it was about 50-50 the other day. We had just simply too much electricity in the atmosphere. There wasn't really a lightning storm or anything like that, but there was a concern that if we did launch, um, it could actually trigger lightning. The weather cleared out just minutes after the scheduled launch time, but by then it was too late. You know, the International Space Station, which is the, the final target for these two astronauts, had already pulled way out of position. It's cruising along at 17,000 miles per hour. So once it was gone, so was the opportunity to launch. Today's launch, not without risks. We've seen two of the Falcon 9 rockets exploded during the development process. Uh, we know SpaceX is developing a new rocket that is only a prototype that exploded yesterday uh, on a, a test site in 
uh, Texas. We know what happened to two of the shuttles. Astronauts and all of your interaction over the years with them, they know there are risks here. Absolutely, but this mission has something the space shuttles did not have, an escape system that could carry them safely away from an exploding rocket all the way up to orbit. That's a way to get home safely if things go catastrophically wrong. We've got the countdown now of under 30 seconds, about 20 seconds left now before we have launch. You can hear behind me the sounds of a humid Florida waiting for this big moment, this historic moment of a commercial spacecraft to lift off. Nine, eight, seven, six, Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Crew Dragon. Go NASA. Go SpaceX. Godspeed, Bob and Doug. The long pencil-like rocket harkening back to the days of the Saturn rockets over 230 feet tall, levitating into the humid Florida landscape. The engines are right now at full power. They can carry 25 tons, giving full thrust. They will throttle back here in just a moment. The Falcon 9 lifting off the launch pad. America has launched again off of U.S. soil and the first commercial launch President Trump looking on the rocket right now with the flame coming out of the bottom, moving through the clouds of Florida. They had a break in the weather. They were able to do it. It was iffy up until just a couple of moments ago. You can hear mission control. Let's keep listening in. Reports say all systems are go. All systems are go. They don't need the emergency procedure right now. They're coming up on max Q, the moment of peak mechanical stress on the rocket. M1D throttle up. We're throttling back up to full power as we're through max Q. They went through max Q. You, you heard me say a moment ago they were going to throttle back, go through max Q. Now they're throttling back up. A long trail coming out behind the rocket of smoke in the sky. You can see exactly where it's been. Now it's just a glow way up in the sky coming up in just a moment here. We're going to get the first stage main engine cut off, and then the two are going to separate. We've heard the call out for MVAC engine chill. That's getting the MVAC engine ready to light. That'll come at about 2.44 into flight. Right now, everything continuing to look good. Next major event coming up is gonna be the triple. We'll have main engine cutoff of the nine first stage engines, stage separation, and then ignition of the second stage engine to continue to carry astronauts into orbit. He was a civil rights icon, and amid civil unrest over the summer, the man who had such an impact passed away. Congressman John Lewis, his life impacting so many, and at memorials in Alabama and Washington, his own words of good trouble were heard over and over again. Across the aisle, from former President Obama to current President Trump, tributes were offered to Lewis, a man who for so long called for peaceful protest to demand equality. Lewis was called the conscience of Congress. I take you back now to July 25th as Lewis's casket was carried over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama, the same bridge Lewis crossed on March 7th of 1965. Good morning. The body of the late Congressman John Lewis is about to be carried across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where he helped lead demonstrators beaten by authorities as they marched in 1965. 
now crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, one final time on its way to Montgomery, reenacting Bloody Sunday on March 1965. You can hear the horses drawing the flag-wrapped casket of Congressman John Lewis for a final crossing over the Edmund Pettus Bridge. The American flag wrapping Lewis's casket stands out as a splash of color against the black carriage and the dark brown horses. The two coachmen are clad in black. The horses that are drawing the casket now round the corner and the bridge is within view. They are several deep along the sidewalk, corners in masks. Many of them have phones in the air to capture this moment. You hear the slow footsteps of the horses and the slow churn of the carriage wheels. I love you, Corners call out. Coachman is now standing to direct the horses across the bridge. There are two large bouquets of flowers at the entrance to the bridge. Many of the mourners have their hands over their hearts as the casket passes by, now pausing at the entrance to the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Thank you from the crowd of mourners on the street. Very much celebrating the life and legacy of Congressman Lewis. The final journey of Congressman John Lewis continues now after pausing at the apex of the bridge. Three of John Lewis's brothers, his son John Miles, have now stepped in behind the casket for the final portion of the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. And now the flag-wrapped casket of John Lewis has crossed the bridge, made it to the other side of the Alabama River to continue a march toward Montgomery on the final journey for Congressman John Lewis. 2020 will no doubt be remembered for the pandemic, but also for one of the most divisive elections in history. Claims of fraud and mistrust sowed into what the country experienced. It was a bitter battle between President Trump and now President-elect Joe Biden. It took until Saturday, four days after Election Day, before the nation learned who would be the next president. Now a glimpse back to that day, our coverage of the 2020 election. Good morning. We're coming on the air with you now because ABC News now characterizes Joe Biden, the apparent winner in Pennsylvania, the state where he was born, delivering the presidency with its 20 electoral votes. 
Based on results we've received from election officials in Pennsylvania, ABC News can characterize Biden the apparent winner, a win that makes him president-elect. Based on these numbers and those in other states, Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. This characterization of the race comes while President Trump is on the golf course in Virginia. ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. The president arrived at his golf course about an hour ago, and he tweeted this within the hour, in all caps, I won this election by a lot. The president's legal team continuing to try and figure out a path to challenge the election results in these key battleground states. Moments ago, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden were on the phone together. We did it. We did it, Joe. You're going to be the next president of the United States. (laughs) There are now different uh, uh, parties in the streets of major American cities. New York for one, Washington uh, in another. You can hear the crowd here in Independence Mall where thousands are gathering for what was a planned march that's going to occur, but it came just before word that Joseph Biden would be president-elect of the United States. You have union groups out here. You have count-every-vote groups out here, all part of this march. But you can hear the cheering, cars honking on Market Street right here in the heart of Philadelphia. President Trump supporters rallying here outside of the Arizona State Capitol say they don't believe the projections and that they're lies. Angela is in the crowd here. She says the courts will give Trump the presidency. Well, it's not over. I don't believe it's over. I think this is going to the Supreme Court. I don't think at all that it's over. You can't call that. uh, You can't uh, call something uh, when there's corruption. The crowd here has been chanting four more years. They say once all of the legal votes are counted, that Trump will win. Alex Stone, ABC News, Phoenix. We have elected a president who represents the best in us, a leader the world will respect and our children will look up to, a commander-in-chief who will respect our troops and keep our country safe, and a president for all Americans. And it is now my great honor to introduce the president-elect of the United States of America, Joe Biden. I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. And now together, On Eagle's wings, we embark on the work that God and history have called upon us to do with full hearts and steady hands, with faith in America and in each other, with love of country, a thirst for justice. Let us be the nation that we know we can be, a nation united, a nation strengthened, a nation healed, the United States of America. Ladies and gentlemen, there's never, never and anything we've tried, we've not been able to do. And now in just a few weeks, President-elect Biden will put his hand on a Bible and will take the oath of office, but no doubt the impact of the 2020 election will be felt for a very long time to come. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. From ABC News, this is 2020, the year in review. Join us as we look back at some of the year's top stories as they were originally reported. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. 2020, life has been very different this year. I don't have to tell you that from how we all work to how we relax to how we enjoy the simple things. Nothing is like it was last year at this time. And through all of it, as Americans, we have persevered. This hour, we're going to take you on a journey with some of our best reporting as we celebrated different holidays in 2020, beginning back on Labor Day. Jazz musicians were figuring out how they would cope with the future of nightlife or lack thereof it. There is hope today a vaccine will soon make nightlife possible again. But back then, so much was unknown. Here's my friend Aaron Katursky with their story. By the time John Coltrane recorded at the Village Vanguard in the early 1960s, the basement wedge of a space was well on its way to international renown. Now the oldest operating jazz club in New York City, the Vanguard has been a home for working musicians and performers for 85 years. Yeah, yeah, the great Freddie Waits up there in the corner. Dear departed Freddie Waits, the father of the marvelous Nasheed Waits, is now one of the great drummers on the scene. The music has played on through wartime, civil unrest, and the city's darkest hours until coronavirus. You know, before this happened, we had about two years of stuff in the book already just waiting. The musicians have been forced to adjust, just like the rest of us. How we work now is our Labor Day look at a workforce transformed. The transformation has been easier for some than others. Honestly, there was periods of kind of grief. You know, I've carved an identity as a professional, collaborative, improvising musician for more than 45 years, and all of a sudden, that's gone. A night at the Village Vanguard to see Fred Hirsch on the piano now seems a calculated risk. A subway ride to get there, a windowless room, shoulder-to-shoulder seating. Social distancing, New York Times music critic Giovanni Rossinello wrote, is against the very nature of the enterprise. It's the same for theater, the opera, the ballet. Broadway, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center have all canceled shows for the rest of the year. And that has caused hardship for everyone associated with the performing arts and entertainment. There's no recordings to look forward to, no tours to look forward to, no music to rehearse. Fred Hirsch told us at least he plays the piano. I play an instrument that, you know, 
has moments of frustration, but is generally kind of satisfying on its own. So I'm lucky with that. Hirsch is a 15-time Grammy nominee. Vanity Fair has called him the most arrestingly innovative pianist in jazz over the last decade. He became the first solo pianist to play a week-long engagement at the Village Vanguard, where he has made five recordings. It was also the last place he collaborated with other musicians in front of an audience in February. Immediately, I started doing live streams. Just with a phone, I did what I called the tune of the day, and I did it for six weeks plus. Every day at one o'clock, I would just put on the phone, play a tune. Sometimes I'd read a little something. I just wanted to do something that might make people happy. Um, you know, five or six minutes is not a huge investment of time. And everybody knew that it would come at that hour and that it would be archived. They could watch it later. And I was getting numbers of thousands of hits, sometimes quite a number of hits. But the best part of that was the comments. I don't really see, see real gigs coming back until a year from the fall. I don't see summer festivals next year. I don't really see substantial venues in the United States reopening this year. Sunday the 15th of March was the last night of the Peter Bernstein Quartet, and we closed the next night and we have not reopened to the public since. Jed Eisenman is the Vanguard's longtime manager and booker. It's empty of, of people. But it's actually not empty at all, Aaron. It's, uh, this place is haunted in a good way. I used to come four or five times a week just to putter around and convene with those spirits and to let them know that we're coming back and we're going to have music here because they are the protectorate of this club. They, they watch out for us. There's got to so. be some good energy in this space. It's amazing, actually, you know, because in the 85 years of this club's existence, We've been a jazz club since about the mid-50s, but there was all this amazing stuff that went on before that as well. So the ghosts of comedians and, and blues musicians and vaudevillians and social uh, commentary types and great actors reading from Shakespeare. There was a lot of different stuff here. We spoke in the back room that is at once office, green room, dishwashing station, and liquor storage. Even in the emptiness out front, there is an energy to the place. But how long it stays empty, Eisenman can't say. What's appealing about this place is the intimacy. So until people feel comfortable, till we feel comfortable. The beauty of coming here has always been to pack tightly with fellow lovers of jazz and to be up close and personal with the artists. I'll never forget the first time I came here, uh, dating myself a bit, but it's 1981 and Elvin Jones is playing and they seated me right in front and I've never been the same. <laughs> Legendary jazz drummer Elvin Jones recorded here too. These days the Village Vanguard is hosting live stream concerts Friday and Saturday nights. The tickets are 10 bucks. You sign up online to get a passcode. Were it not or the great artists that play here, we couldn't pull this off. Because honestly, the economics of doing this are not nearly as good as they were to do the live shows, you know? So everybody's gotta make a sacrifice and understand the situation. And without their understanding and agreement, we, you know, we would be presenting a much different level of artistry. Not every club can survive this. Oh, I'm very fearful, actually. I've heard a lot of disturbing noise around the 
edges of the scene indicating there may be some attrition here. You have to reopen. It's yes. a cultural imperative for you to reopen. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't think we have any confusion about that. Uh, I think you're right. I think it is our mission to continue to do this as long as we need to and then to reopen when it's safe and when the time is right. Sure, sure. New York wouldn't be the same without this place. We know that. Fred Hirsch understood the imperative. We spoke to him as he was getting ready for his live stream appearance. Part of the great reason to live here is, you know, to pop in at the Vanguard or go out to a club, you know, and, and see friends and support them. And uh, everybody hugs in the jazz community. Do you miss collaborating with other musicians? More than anything. This weekend will be my first time playing with other people since my last night at the Vanguard on February 16th. So that's a really long time. And of course, we'll wear masks and everybody's had to have a COVID test. But, um, you know, I think it, it might be a little scary and I might be a little nervous. Actually, I'm allowing for that, that I might be a little nervous. Uh, and of course, you don't have an audience, so you, you can't really gauge you know, whether people are digging it or not. He knows there's more at stake, though, than a decent performance. One of the reasons to do this Vanguard gig is, you know, it's a few bucks, but I'm also trying to ensure that it survives. You know, it's 85 years old, and it's one of those things like, places like that, that that make New York, New York, if they die, then there's really nothing to come back to. The virus has made this a time of improvisation, exploring new ways to make music until we can all return to the same melody. All you had to do was look at the stock price of companies that make frozen and canned goods this year. They had been hurting for a few years and then everything turned around in 2020. As Americans, we went for the staples of comfort food. Pizza companies have seen their sales booming, including those who make frozen pizzas. Here's my colleague, Ryan Burrow. Home Run Inn has been dishing out pizza in the Chicago area since 1932. Originally out of a Southside Tavern, the company says a baseball from a neighborhood park smashed through a window. The tavern changed its name to Home Run Inn, and a decade later, Mary Gratani and her son-in-law, Nick, crafted the iconic pizza recipe that's still used today. Flash forward 70 years, and Home Run Inn now has nine restaurants fanned out across the Chicago area, but a bigger portion of the business model is frozen pizza made from a warehouse in Woodridge, Illinois. Really, it's the commissary for both the restaurants and for our frozen food production. So we make all of our dough, cheese, and sausage in-house here. And then I'll I'll say we ship it to our restaurants and we ship it to our manufacturing uh, lines. So everything that really creates that consistency and quality that you, you people know and love with Home Run In, you know, across our restaurants and frozen as they come from the same background, same process. Nick Perino is COO. No outsiders allowed inside of the warehouse, but they sent me some video and spoke to me via Zoom. I think it's in 40 plus states and there's some retailers that we're in that continue to, you know, open up in Delaware and spots like that. So, you know, we could be in 43, 44 now. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're very close to getting into almost all the states. And that was before the pandemic. As the virus started to spread, restaurants closed and grocery stores became Americans' go-to for all things food. 
frozen pizza sales took off. Dan Costello is CEO. The restaurants obviously got hurt, even though, you know, we have carry out delivery at the restaurants. So that part of the business has been good, but we lost all our dining rooms. So, so your carry out delivery business has gone up 20, 25%, but your dining room has gone to almost zero. Frozen side, I think in the initial phases of this, we're about 45, 50% up over prior year. It's slowed down now. Operating a 130 employee warehouse during a crush of demand is one thing. Doing it during a pandemic is another. We had significant price increases and cost impact on a couple of core ingredients. We had a major spike, 30, 40% cost increase on pork, you know, overnight um, that we had to deal with and we weren't able to raise our prices. We're just starting to come off of a major spike in cheese commodity. And of course, protecting the more than 100 employees has posed its own challenges. They had cleaning procedures in place already, but had to make some adjustments. Right away, um, before even uh, Illinois mandated and other states were doing it, we started a mask policy on April 1st. Um, cleaning, we have two dedicated people within our facility cleaning all of the heavily used areas, break rooms, you name it, they're basically, we have one person basically in the break room all the time cleaning for lunches and, and breaks and people have to be closer together. We've enforced that team members wear a face shield and a face mask. Sharif Abdo is a QA manager, making sure the temperatures of the materials and pizzas are at the right level to keep the food safe. While much of the world shut down during the pandemic, he kept going into work. First started, like I go into the grocery store and then pretty much in my area, uh, our products was, pretty much the only frozen pizza I see in a lot of the supermarkets in my area. So, and I mean, I seen like a lot of customers in the store, they were kind of filling up their carts with it. Nick says it can be a challenge trying to keep all those employees safe. Because at the end of the day, you, people go home and they live their lives. I don't know, I live my life a certain way and everyone else, you know, views this uh, disease one way or another. Some people are so you know, really fearful of it. And some people are not, as we're seeing in society, people are going to beaches and not wearing masks and not social distancing. We can't control that outside of the, uh, out of our business. They have had some confirmed cases. The week of eight, the week of Easter was horrible. I mean, I think Nick and I were sitting here. We, we didn't know if we were going to operate and we had orders coming out, you know, it was, it was, business was, was re we're really busy and it wasn't so much about meeting the orders for the week. I think in the back of our heads, what we were concerned about, if we weren't able to meet the orders, what ultimately would the retailers think of us as a supplier? That, I think, was the ultimate learning is the importance of communicating to people, telling them what you do know, telling them what you don't know. Despite high demand, Home Run Inn has had some extra pizzas on hand. We have a location in Midway Airport that uses a an eight inch pizza that you don't find in the retailer. So we had produced a bunch of those pizzas and we ship them into that store on a daily basis. So like, what are we gonna do with these? So our, our sales and marketing team did a great job. They connected and donated 75,000 pizzas to first responders and families. Um, uh, like the, we did 5,000 pizzas recently to Big Shoulders, which supports Catholic schools, right? In, in the Chicagoland area. We have good friends that are part of that program um, that we like to support. Demand has dipped since the beginning of the pandemic, but the efforts by the workers and staff continue. They're still masked, they're still distanced, and they're still donating food. Coronavirus or not, Americans still crave a good frozen pizza. We turn now from frozen pizza to one business struggling to serve fresh pizza. 
During this global pandemic, scores of restaurants across the country have been forced to close their doors. And ABC's Brian Clark tells us for those that have stayed open, each day presents a whole new series of challenges, decisions, and frustration. Walking down any street in New York City brings plenty of sounds. But in this most unusual year, it's also brought some previously unseen sights. This street in Manhattan features one restaurant with plexiglass dividers between tables. A block away, diners at another restaurant sit at tables on the street in an area blocked off from traffic by a wooden partition. Welcome to the world of restaurants in the age of COVID-19. And while diners are having to adjust, restaurant owners and the people they employ are facing at times existential threats to their businesses. Across the river in Lindhurst, New Jersey, Danny owns Mr. Bruno's, a popular Italian restaurant. When the virus first started, it was was, you know, very difficult. Our pickup, our pickup business, our delivery business, it all went down. And then a few weeks later, it actually picked up to where it was, you know, before the virus. And then after that, I would say about two months ago, we're probably doing more deliveries and more pickups. But, the, you know, the dining experience isn't there. He says that's been a lifeline. But how long can a restaurant survive with that business model? I always said that I, I would lose less money staying home and closing the doors. But I figured that wasn't a good look. It's, it's basically, you know, just not making any money, you know, basically breaking even. We're sitting inside of Mr. Bruno's. In-person dining is still prohibited in New Jersey. Earlier in the summer, the state had signaled that restaurants would be able to open at 25% capacity indoors in early July. But just days before indoor dining was set to resume, Governor Phil Murphy announced a change in course. As of late August, a new date has not been announced. Danny doesn't think it would come before October, and he says that expanding outside has not been a seamless process. The governor said we're going to do everything in our power to let you use parking lots and closed streets and, you know, things like that. Permission was given to expand part of their existing outdoor area, but he said that also did not go off without a hitch. He ordered some barricades. They delivered them. There's graffiti on them. They were filthy and all for like four tables. I'm like, just take them out of here. So Mr. Bruno's is moving forward with some outdoor dining and continued takeout service. People that order from us, they know our food is good. You know, we're not really a pizzeria. We're a restaurant. So our food is very good. So the people that know that, they're ordering good food. This holiday season, we're thinking about all of those who have lost their jobs this year. Lines at food banks prove how many people are struggling right now. And amid the slowdown brought on by the pandemic, there were some industries that could not keep up with demand. They aren't selling hand sanitizer or masks, but they offer something else we've all needed during the pandemic, companionship. Here's ABC's Daria Albinger. This is a familiar sound in many homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Down. Good. Jordy. That's New York City couple Lindsay and Scott Goldberg training the newest yeah. addition to their family, Jordy, a mixed breed puppy they adopted from a local shelter. And good for them, says Dr. Andrew Flint, a veterinarian in Litchfield County, Connecticut. There are a number of animals in shelters. Um, our shelters in this country are overflowing with um, dogs and cats and even other types of pets that um, through no fault of their own have ended up there whether they were uh, they got lost and were picked up or their families couldn't afford to have them anymore or some of them have behavioral problems and so they end up in the shelters and uh, as such you know they're all looking for homes. 
and rescue groups and shelters lately have been busier than ever. It has been amazing. We actually emptied our shelter two weeks prior to when we thought a shelter-in-place order would go into, into effect, and we got every single animal in our facility into foster care. Irene Borngraber, Executive Director of Liberty Humane Society in Jersey City, New Jersey, says she can't remember when... So many people were so anxious to adopt. We weren't quite sure how, what was going to happen next, if people were going to go back to work, if they were going to be willing to take the animals for an extended period in time. And we were really pleasantly surprised and shocked at how many people stepped up to continuously foster animals for long periods. And a lot of people ended up deciding to make them a permanent addition and adopt. That's great news, she says. But like all jobs, shelters have had to rethink the way that they operate during this pandemic. Tiffany Lace runs Animal Haven, a shelter in New York City. We are an essential service, so our workers were coming into Animal Haven. We had to sort of downsize and we had to call volunteers off because we have like an army of volunteers and also close the front doors. Born Graber agrees. I personally am not full-time at our facility. We are staggering A team, B team, so I don't see a lot of our management on a daily basis or even on a weekly basis. And it is really tough. And we have really had to change the way we communicate with each other and the way that we communicate about the mission. It also left a big part of many rescue organizations out of the loop. I mean, we really miss our volunteers. We miss having people on site. Um, that cross-pollination of ideas is really essential, and there really isn't a good replacement for that. So Lacey says they found new roles for volunteers. With the volunteer program, the first thing we did, because we knew we had to ask them all to stay home, initially we asked them to be our fosters because there was a huge um, interest in fostering along with adopting. So we utilized our volunteers for fostering to begin with, and now we've opened up our um, volunteer program to pre-existing volunteers for them to come in um, for longer shifts with fewer them, few of them at a time. And she's looking forward to once again having a shelter full of people and pets. I'm actually hoping that in the fall we'll be able to expand that a little bit more. Obviously we're using face masks and social distancing and then possibly after the new year if all goes well we could possibly start orientating and bringing in new people. She also says that shelters must be prepared for some of those newly adopted pets to be returned. Changes in life may happen, changes in finances that may necessitate finding a new home for another animal. Born Graber says she's hopeful that many of those pets have indeed found their forever homes. I'm pretty much an optimist and I think, you know, when people do make a connection with an animal long term and we're now three to four months into the shelter in place order and nothing has really changed. And so I do think that with the appropriate support we will see a lot of those animals stay in homes. In the meantime, Lacey says, they're taking things day by day. This is new territory for all of us, so we're sort of answering each issue by doing like baby steps forward. So let's see how Jordy's doing. Yes, <laughs> what a good dog. I'm so proud of you. Nice work, Jordy. All right, give that pup a scratch behind the ears because it sounds like he's doing just fine. We all had to get very creative in numerous ways this year, and the pandemic meant some unique graduation ceremonies were put together over the summer. Some were totally virtual, others were in drive-by form. Whatever form they were in, they were so 2020. ABC's Lionel Moise took part in one that was extra special. Here's Lionel. 
At the University of Miami, a tradition since 1992 honoring black graduates called Senior Mambo. Mambo is a Chichua word from the East African nation of Malawi. When translated, it means ceremonial rite of passage. This ceremony includes African drums, kente stoles, and an elder with words of wisdom. A celebration for 120 graduates of color from the class of 2020, 450 guests in the room. Except this year, because of COVID-19, the stage they walked across was a virtual one. The event completely remote for the first time ever. Christopher Clark is director of the University of Miami's Department of Multicultural Student Affairs. He says canceling was not an option. It was a no-brainer for me. Our students need us. Our students needed us needed us then, but they need us now more than ever um, as a result of COVID. And we had to find a way to move forward. And we need these diverse students to understand that we need them more than ever. They need to know that. We need to empower them. We need to send them off into this professional space as prepared as possible, as confident as possible, and as focused as possible, because they are going to be the future of what this country looks like. The university turned to tech in every aspect. Hashtags for current students and friends to post their memories. The ceremony, a pre-taped live stream on Vimeo, where guests could comment and share words of encouragement. Recorded messages from faculty and staff. I love this event because we have an opportunity to thank Thank you and to celebrate you. An alumni speaker whose voice may sound a bit familiar. You, the class of 2020, are the leaders that we need today. And it all culminated with the walk digitally across the stage to signify their next chapter. For many students, Senior Mamba was their only recognition because the university had to move its school-wide commencement to December. And across the country, we saw innovation and creativity to honor graduates of all ages. In Sumter, South Carolina, a major accomplishment for Andrea Clark when she found out she was this year's valedictorian. Her school went on spring break when the pandemic started. It was extended and extended and extended until she was told the remainder of the year would be virtual. Not exactly the way she thought her senior year would go. Well, I grew up watching High School Musical, and so I had idolized this version of high school. You know, you're going to walk across the stage, and you're going to give the speech, and it's going to be like out of a movie, and then you have this virus come along and ruin everything. Sumter High School held a walkthrough graduation where students came separately, Andrea was able to record her valedictorian speech there, and they aired the ceremony together as a live stream event on YouTube. Woo! As if the year wasn't an adjustment enough, she celebrated two milestones in front of her computer screen. It's actually interesting because I had my 18th birthday party on Zoom. We really have to use the our platforms, our virtual platforms to our advantage. You know, the lucky thing is that we have social media where we know how to use it. And so we can remain in contact with each other. Something that we really haven't seen to this scale before, the big names coming together for national commencements. Oprah speaking at the hashtag graduation 2020 event on Facebook Watch. But even though there may not be pomp because of our circumstances, never has a graduating class been called to step into the future with more purpose, vision, passion, and energy. Miley Cyrus, Jennifer Garner, and Lil Nas X, just a few of the celebrities popping up to show their support. Former President Barack Obama delivered the commencement address also for a primetime televised event for high school students. As much as I'm sure you love your parents, Parents, I'll bet that being stuck at home with them and playing board games or watching Tiger King on TV is not exactly how you envisioned the last few months of your senior year. He spoke at a virtual ceremony
ceremony for graduates from historically black colleges and universities. And then Dear Class of 2020, a virtual ceremony streamed on YouTube from YouTube Originals. The important thing is to recognize that this nation needs your talents, your passions, your voice to make it better. These unique celebrations now a permanent memory for graduates. Christopher Clark at the University of Miami. A beautiful opportunity for, for these graduates because they can look at this years down the road and say, this is time stamped in history. This is digitized forever. You can remember this moment where you were as you walked across that virtual stage and show your children, show your grandchildren and in 2020 what your graduation was like and what you, where you were in that moment. Technology really leading the way as the country celebrated the class of 2020, their accomplishments and their transition into the next chapter of life. Lionel Moyes, ABC News, New York. During the height of quarantine a few months ago, there was a phenomenon taking off in this country. Lots of people started baking sourdough bread. It became a real thing. Friends shared starters. Some people sold starter online. Starter has to be fed and kept alive. Many people named their starter. It was something to do while at home. And it offered a reward at the end, a loaf of hot bread. You may have seen your friends doing it online. In Santa Monica, California, there is a teenager who has taken his ability to make sourdough during COVID-19 to incredible heights. He's putting in labor to create a new business born out of the pandemic. I visited him at his bakery in Santa Monica. Give her one country sliced. And what was the other person? In a nondescript storefront, a former pizza joint that went belly up during COVID-19. Now the windows covered up, no sign outside. Giant Horwitz is creating a bread-making empire. Busy at the slicing machine and baking more loaves, he can barely keep up with demand. Very, very soon we're going to have a new bread oven, which will allow us to make double the amount of bread and um, quadruple our capacity and production. Outside the unmarked store, like partiers trying to get into an underground rave, there's a line of masked people waiting to pick up the bread they ordered online. Some driving an hour or more to try Giant's bread. Dan didn't come quite that far, but he's outside waiting to pick up his order. Great, you know, kind of uh, really crusty on the outside, a great crumb on the inside, uh, very flavorful, uh, just a meal in itself. You know, you, you put a little butter on it, toast it, it's just uh, fantastic. Anybody lining up here like Dan has had to wait a long time because Giant is so backlogged, once an order is placed, the bread won't be ready for weeks. Yeah, like when you order, if you order today, you get it in like three weeks because we just don't have the capacity to fulfill all the demand. Like we will, but just not right now. There you go. When the door opens up and one of Giant's employees comes out to greet those who are lined up, the smell of perfectly sour bread comes wafting out. So I was baking at home and I needed to find a place where I could do more bread. And this place has a pizza oven, so I, that was a really cool thing. So I started baking in these cast iron pans, these Dutch oven combo cookers. And I bought, eventually I had 20 of them. So I was able to do 20 loaves at a time. And in both decks of this old pizza oven. I was yielding a pretty good product for a while, and now I'm uh, unable to do that much bread at 20 at a time. So I'm actually baking off-site at a local bakery called Superba on Lincoln Boulevard. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Jayan is only 19 years old. He was laid off from his job at a popular bakery nearby because of COVID-19 shutdowns. He took his passion for baking bread, and he has an incredible amount of passion for it, and created his own company. We have, um, country sourdough 
Um, we have a seeded sourdough. We have a um, whole wheat. Uh, seeded has sesame seeds, flax seeds, sunflower seeds, and pumpkin seeds. You're probably asking what makes his bread so good that people will sign up three weeks early and then wait in the line outside to pick it up. I'm not using any um, commercial yeast. It's 100% naturally fermented with a sourdough starter. So it's really beneficial to just digestion and um, ease of eating. It doesn't make you feel super bloated because we ferment it for, for like 16 hours, so the grain is super broken down. His loaves are baked in cast iron skillets, are round and crusty. It makes me really happy that people really uh, appreciate, you know, me, my passion for baking bread. And um, yeah, I just, I really, really am humbled that people love it so much, you know. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. From ABC News, this is 2020, the year in review. Join us as we look back at some of the year's top stories as they were originally reported. Here is ABC News correspondent Alex Stone. 2020 was a year that will go down in the history books. The long lines outside of stores, a hunt to find toilet paper out of all things, kids not in school, and to think many people wouldn't work out of an office for many months. But it didn't end there. There were the job losses and the racial unrest in this country. This hour, we're going to look back at 2020 through the eyes of our ABC News podcast called Start Here, where my colleagues covered the year that's gone by. And we begin with a story that was the intersection of COVID-19 and the impactful calls for change in this country when it comes to racial equality. It was late August when the NBA was playing in the bubble in Orlando. The playoffs were underway and the Milwaukee Bucks walked out. Now start here, host Brad Milkey on that day. When police shot a man in the back in Kenosha, Wisconsin, it looked like we were getting into a very familiar routine. We saw what was tantamount to cold-blooded attempted murder. Video from a bystander came out. People gathered in the streets. We still here. They marched on public buildings. Police moved in. Private property went up in flames, and then the same thing repeated again the next night. But then, in the early hours of yesterday morning, that familiar story started changing quickly. Violence broke out overnight in Kenosha. Cars it began in front of a boarded up business as police began telling demonstrators they were violating a curfew. Near that business, cell phone video captures a young white man in a green t shirt wearing rubber gloves and firing an assault rifle. Police say this is a 17-year-old named Kyle Rittenhouse, a young man who reportedly thought of himself as an ardent supporter of police who's not from Kenosha, but from Antioch, Illinois. 
And Rittenhouse aside, there were several other people who had already shown up saying they were ready to aid police on their own. A Facebook post from a self-described militia group asked if people were willing to come take up arms to defend Kenosha. But back to the gunman, because on this video, he's allegedly already fired. You can hear people saying, he shot someone. People start chasing him. They push him to the ground, and that's when you see him fire off several more rounds. Two people are dead. A third is injured. And as everyone screams and backs away, this young man walks straight toward flashing police lights down the road. His arms are raised. His rifle is still strapped across his chest. And despite people yelling, Hey, dude right here just shot them! Police go right past him, and he walks away. Rittenhouse was not arrested until later that day when police say he had returned home to Illinois. And if outrage had already built up in Wisconsin before this, these headlines were growing more and more appalling to many by the minute. A situation developing at the Advent Health Arena. We're keeping an eye on it. The Milwaukee Bucks have not come out of the locker room. Well, yesterday, all of a sudden, we learned Milwaukee's NBA team had not come out on the floor to play its big playoff game. They were refusing to take the court. Over the next several hours, that became a wave across sports, across states, in what has now this morning become a massive, once-in-a-lifetime walkout of professional athletes. Let's talk about this form of protest with our partners at ESPN. Rachel Nichols is a longtime NBA anchor. She hosts ESPN's The Jump. Rachel, can you just walk us back here? How did this start? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, players have been talking over these past few days, more and more disturbed by the events in Wisconsin. They've been working for months to bring awareness to the situation across America, what it is like to be black in America, the injustices, the police brutality, all of the kinds of issues that we've been talking about so much. And they felt they were making some progress. And when this video came out and the shooting happened i think it was really a blow um until the world get their together i guess we're not going to get our stuff together so then they talked openly about that the point of us coming down here was to create change and i feel like we did it we're doing a good job of that but obviously not good enough there were guys who were questioning why they were playing at all mm, and those conversations yeah. sort of started to slowly snowball all you do is keep hearing a fear it's it's amazing to me why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. The Milwaukee Bucks got some attention because, of course, the shooting happened in Wisconsin. And on Wednesday morning, they were asked over and over, hey, are you guys thinking of boycotting? And, and the answer was no, we really haven't talked about it. But sometime between their morning practice and it was time for them to come out of their game, they just did not come out of their locker room. The social justice Crusade continues from the bubble at Disney, and today's game is in question. To say it was a surprise is an understatement. The Orlando Magic, who were playing the Bucks that night, uh, they were out on the court warming up, so they didn't know. Bucks officials and Bucks ownership said that they didn't know. Uh, but indeed, when the Bucks players didn't come out, the NBA went to knock on their door, and they said that they were, in fact, boycotting this game and that they wanted to make a statement, and they certainly did. At that point, the Orlando Magic players, they left the arena, and then there were two other NBA playoff games scheduled to be played last night, and neither one of them, of course, happened. The NBA officially saying that they were postponing those games. They're only postponed, though, if the players agree to come back and play them. So we will see what happens there.
Right, and the terminology, like no one's, you know, people are saying boycott, maybe it's more of a player strike since they're doing it, but there's no union involved, maybe it's a walkout. The point is, and I think this is significant, what you mentioned, the players did not run this by the ownership. They did not craft a message with the league the way they did with kneeling during the anthem. They just decided unilaterally, we're sitting out. Yeah, absolutely. And as I said, even Buck's leadership and ownership was not in on this decision. But I will say this. It's interesting. When players were asked over the previous 24 hours, if you did boycott, what would you be doing? And one of what would you be asking for? What would you want? And one of the players, Fred Van Vliet uh, of the Toronto Raptors, who is from Illinois, said that he really felt like they needed to put more pressure on ownership. We are calling for justice for Jacob Blake and demand the officers be held accountable. For this to occur, it is imperative for the Wisconsin State Legislature to reconvene after months of inaction and take up meaningful measures to address issues of police accountability, brutality, and criminal justice reform. Let's face it, NBA owners, they're not just millionaires anymore. Most NBA owners at this point are billionaires, and they have so much money, so much resources, so much access to politicians. And in fact, one of the owners of an NBA team, Betsy DeVos, who is part of the DeVos family that owns the Orlando Magic, she's in Donald Trump's cabinet. ABC News exclusive Milwaukee Bucks rookie Sterling Brown is now telling his story for the first time about that dramatic incident with police that was caught on camera. In fact, Sterling Brown, who's a guard with the Milwaukee Bucks, two years ago was a victim himself of police brutality. He parked incorrectly in a drugstore parking lot. He absolutely did not park the right way. And then this. Taser, taser, taser. Police tasing him after they say he got aggressive. But guess what? Later, not parking correctly is probably not cause for being thrown face down on the pavement and escaping after this incident with police. He said later, he said, I'm very happy I got out of there alive. There was a point where I didn't think I was going to. I was going to ask, you know, in the big scheme of things, one man was paralyzed on Sunday. Two more people are dead this morning in Kenosha. So I wanted to ask how much these public acts of protest from from basketball players actually matter. It should not be incumbent on a bunch of 20-something basketball players. Uh, I would certainly hope as an American citizen that our politicians, the people I have elected, the community leaders, our spiritual leaders, would be the ones taking the lead here. Even if we get what we want, we still have to, we still need more. What are, what are we getting? But in the void of leadership, I think these players feel that they have a voice. And they do, as I mentioned, have access to these billionaires. And I think there will be increasing pressure in the coming days on those owners uh, to, to really use those connections, money and political power in the direction of the players who are making them that money. We're not just basketball players. And if you think we are, then don't watch us. You're watching our own sport because we're so much more than that. We're going to say what we need to say. People need to hear that. They don't support this form of protest has spread to the WNBA, which canceled games. You could say they've actually been ahead of the curve on a lot of these social issues. They've also had games canceled in Major League Soccer, in baseball, mm -hmm. tennis later today. The question will be, at what point do owners stop being so supportive? And if they do, how far are players willing to go? Rachel Nichols from ESPN. Thank you. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. Through this year, crowds have been chanting her name. Breonna Taylor. Her case, along with George Floyd's, have both been front and center of the movement to change policing in this country. Breonna Taylor lived in Louisville and was shot and killed by police in her own home during a raid that did not involve her. In late September, one of the officers involved was charged, but not for her death. We take you back now to coverage from start here on that day. Here again is Brad Milkey. There are plenty of examples of people of color in this country being killed by police in plain sight. 
Black Americans have long pointed to Eric Garner, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, and now George Floyd as reasons for keeping their guard up in public. Breonna Taylor is different because the death of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, has now come to represent someone who wasn't even safe in her own home, sleeping in her bed. A 26-year-old black woman killed in her apartment by Louisville Metro Police during the botched execution of a no-knock search warrant in March. The city had already expressed remorse and reached a settlement agreement with her family, including money and police reforms. But the officers themselves, who shot into Taylor's home, had not yet been charged with a crime. Okay, we are on the record to receive the report of the grand jury for September 23rd, 2020. Well, yesterday, prosecutors announced that after presenting the facts to a grand jury, they had a decision. In the matter of Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Brett Hankison, the Jefferson County grand jury charges as follows. One officer would be charged, but not for murder. The others hadn't been charged with anything at all. And if potential charges were the big fire door on Louisville, keeping those glowing embers of anger in check, this gave those embers a rush of oxygen. And officials immediately worried that the city could burst into flames. Let's go to ABC's Alex Perez. He joins us from Louisville, Kentucky. Alex, there were charges here, right? Why did activists and the Taylor family not think they were enough? Well, let's take a step back here. The tension, the anxiety has been growing in the air here in Louisville for some six months now since Breonna Taylor was killed. The police department in Louisville is bracing for an announcement of the investigation by Kentucky's attorney general. And it reached a fever pitch in the last couple of days as the city sort of warned everyone that this announcement was coming. Uh, Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. So everyone was glued to their phones, glued to their computers, watching this announcement made by the attorney general in Frankfort, Kentucky. That's about 45 minutes away from Louisville. And what we learned is that the grand jury, after it was presented with evidence, decided to charge one of the three officers involved, charge him with three counts of wanton endangerment for firing his weapon in that apartment complex where she was killed and endangering other residents of that apartment complex. So you're saying he's not being charged for shooting at Breonna Taylor. He's being charged for shooting into, like, her neighbor's homes. Into uh, endangering the other people who live in that apartment complex. And in those charges, Breonna Taylor is not even mentioned. And that's really what has many protesters in disbelief, that none of these charges actually had anything to do with Breonna Taylor herself or with her death. Decision by the great jury, your reaction? My reaction, I am quite devastated, to say at the very least. Like, I'm just, I'm very, very sad. Very, very mad. I mean, when this announcement was made, there were protesters who were literally crying. I feel like it could have been me. Um, Sorry. Um, Breonna Taylor was 26 when she was killed in her apartment, and I was also 26 at the time. So then, like, for me to turn 27, and for her to not turn 27, like, it, it's kind of wild. Like, it was difficult for a lot of people. I talked to some people on the ground. At the end of the day, the other two police officers that were involved in this are going to be able to go home and sleep in their own beds. And Brianna's mom's not going to be able to hug her daughter ever again. Kenny Walker's never going to be able to see his girlfriend again. 
Many of them are disheartened. They see this decision um, as much more than just Breonna Taylor. They see it as a bigger part of the Black Lives Matter movement. Not only ending no-knock warrants, but mandating that officers have their body cameras on when they issue a warrant before and afterwards. But uh, with that said, a lot of the people I talk to say, uh, you know, they're not giving up. They still believe in the movement. They still believe that things uh, uh, here and across the country can change and they're going to continue working on that. Well, and state officials had really been prepping for potential violence if this exact scenario happens. We're still getting a sense of exactly all the things that unfold on a night like we just saw. But in the immediate aftermath, I mean, what has the vibe in the city been like? Yeah, you know, I mean, the air was tense, and part of the tension in the air uh, had to do with authorities uh, preemptively uh, seeming to prepare for the worst. Downtown area here in Louisville, some 25 blocks, uh, completely barricaded, closed to vehicular traffic for two days. Mm. Um, every business downtown completely boarded up. But in the immediate aftermath of that decision, what we saw was uh, marchers uh, taking to the streets, mostly peacefully. We did see there are some uh, garbage cans that protesters uh, lit on fire. They are about to disperse chemical agents, y'all. There were some what looked like heated clashes with police officers. But authorities are hoping that the decisions they made before all of this, calling in 500 National Guardsmen, uh, canceling uh, vacation days and days off for police officers so they have extra officers, they're hoping that those decisions pay off in, in the long run as, as, as things move forward here. And we actually got word overnight that two officers were shot in an incident. It wasn't immediately clear how related to the protest this was, but there's a suspect in custody. There are clearly concerns here, Alex. So as far as charges go, just so we're clear, is this the end of it or could there still be new charges down the line? The criminal investigation at this point involving those three officers, uh, according to the attorney general, seems to be completed. We know that y'all was going to do this. We know Daniel's not going to do nothing. We know that. But there is a federal civil rights investigation that's still ongoing. And authorities there are uh, working to see if Breonna Taylor's civil rights were violated when this uh, warrant was executed back in March of this mm. year. And, and part of that involves, you know, uh, investigating the officers that were responsible for issuing that warrant and uh, how exactly it was carried out. So the federal civil rights investigation is not entirely over just yet, but it appears the criminal investigation uh, is over and not what exactly protesters were looking for. All right, Alex Perez reporting from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Alex, we'll check in with you later. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Qasem Soleimani was a name the average American probably did not know before the beginning of January, almost a year ago. Before COVID-19 and the election took over our world, one of the big headlines was a killing of the Iranian general. He was a very high-profile figure in Iran. In fact, he was Iran's highest intelligence official, taken out by an armed American drone. In the days that followed, nobody knew if Iran would retaliate. 
I take you back now to that time, returning to the team at Start Here and host Brad Milkey. For the last several days, this has been the vibe on American airwaves. Number one, there will be dead Americans, dead civilian Americans. What is our plan then? Where does it go? Because the Iranians won't stop. They do worry tonight. That's why Blumenthal said sleepless night. They can strike practically anywhere. Continuing series of escalations. It's easy to see how these things get uh, spiral out of control. Like you can see it. People are freaked out. And not just national security analysts in Washington, right? I was walking my dog the other day and, and guys that would usually be talking about the playoffs on the sidewalk, they were talking about the American decision to take out Qasem Soleimani and how Iran might retaliate. Iran and its allies have sworn harsh revenge against the U.S. That red flag of vengeance unfurled above the mosque in one of Iran's holiest cities for the first time in history. And so if the stakes seem high here, imagine the scene in Iran. Soleimani was one of their most venerated figures. Well, yesterday, as what is left of his body was transported back to Tehran, people gathered in some of the biggest demonstrations of mourning you will ever see. We don't know what's going to happen next in this story, but ABC's chief global affairs correspondent Martha Raditz is at ground zero for whatever it is. She is there in Tehran this morning. And Martha, you actually went out into the streets yesterday during this gathering. I mean, just tell me, what was it like? Brad, there were literally millions of people for the funeral of General Soleimani all across Tehran. The visual images, if I can paint this for you. Millions of people for this funeral standing outside, lining the streets, lining the bridges. Shoulder to shoulder, they were weeping, <laughs> genuine tears. What should we do? What should we do? Wasn't Solomon, it was our father. Wasn't Solomon, it was our father. They killed him, boy. People we talked to uh, broke down crying when they started talking about General Soleimani. Trump hate us. They call us terrorists. They call us a nation of terrorists. What should we do? Are are we human or not? (laughs) What should we do? You tell us. These were young students who I have to think just months ago, uh, in some ways, may have been protesting something else here in Iran, and who six months ago when we were here were criticizing their own leaders. It was all about America. We will take hard revenge. Saying they wanted revenge. And America should have a lot of fear. America should have a lot of fear. They were heartsick over the loss of General Soleimani. They are pointing out his fight against ISIS. He was the man who defeated ISIS. And we are proud of him. He's our hero. And we defend him. Everywhere we have gone, there are images of General Soleimani. Uh, with the Ayatollah, uh, tender photographs of him with young children. As soon as we arrived in the airport, they were running videos about his life. You really feel the impact of of what has happened. Well, so, I mean, Martha, then with all the anti-American sentiment, with just the anger, the emotion there in the streets... I just kind of want to know, like, what's it like for you when you're talking to people? Like, do you feel vulnerable in the streets of Tehran right now? I, I, I have to say that, that 
when we came, there was a moment of wondering what it would be like here. But, but frankly, people were kind. They have generally been very nice. They, they aim their uh, fury, I would say, at President Trump. What is your message to Mr. Trump? President Trump, you don't have any right to kill him. There were many, many mentions of President Trump and what he did. But the emotion is everywhere. People bad, have a bad, very strong go. message. Bad, 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 Obviously, we were surrounded by people saying uh, death to America. Uh, I never felt particularly vulnerable about that. They are shouting that in, in very general terms, but I felt no threat at all. It was August 4th in Beirut, Lebanon. It's a city that has been through so much war and loud blasts used to be all too common, but the blasts that went off in 2020 was like nothing the country had experienced before. A big chunk of the city was blown away, around 200 people killed. At first, it was believed maybe it was terrorism, but it quickly became apparent that a highly explosive chemical ammonium nitrate had been left deteriorating in a hangar, and finally it blew. To the coverage of the event and the team at our podcast start here. This is how they covered it. We still don't even know what happened yet. It is hard to overstate the destruction in Lebanon's capital of Beirut this week. Buildings flattened, thousands of injuries, a death toll that is rapidly climbing through triple figures, all because of this explosion at the city's seaport. And while we still don't know how this explosion was set off, we do know that this port housed huge amounts of ammonium nitrate, which is not some exotic chemical compound. It is stored in sites all around the world, including the U.S. So how dangerous can this chemical be? I want to turn to ABC's Matt McGarry. We actually moved back here to New York City after living in Lebanon for seven years. And Matt, you literally just came back a few months ago, right? So you must know people affected by all this. I just came back really like a month and a half ago, two months ago. And so for me, this is a really personal tragedy. I've been looking at all the videos on, on the social media. A priest live streaming a service when the shockwaves hit. Stained glass raining down as the church shakes. And seeing videos shot right outside my old apartment building where it just shows complete and total devastation. And actually the woman who took over my old apartment sent me some pictures from inside. The windows were blown in. Oh Everything is trashed inside. It's really terrible. This has been my office for 30 years, this woman told me. Now it's gone, just disappeared into the past. Almost every single friend that I have that I've spoken to back there in Beirut has been injured in some way. I generally thought the building was going to crumble down while I was in my own home. Luckily, no one I know has had any life-threatening injuries, but everyone's got gashes. Wow. They're, they've got stitches and staples in their heads. Do and they all live close to that area then, Matt, or how widespread are we talking? Well, I mean, this is the problem. It's a massive area. We're talking about even people living a mile away Buildings were completely destroyed. I mean, this, this blast was heard in Cyprus, which is 150 miles to the west of Beirut. I mean, you have some people think it was an attack, and you have some people that think it wasn't. In any event, it was a terrible event, and a lot of people were killed, and a tremendous number of people were badly wounded, injured. Okay, so, so obviously, the question for officials has been, is this deliberate, right? And there's still 
uh, sort of discussions about that. Matt, in some ways, I almost wonder if it's more worrisome if it wasn't deliberate, because if it was an accident, that means that accident with this chemical could happen again, could happen anywhere. You're absolutely right. It's really important to point out that right now we don't know what caused this explosion and the Lebanese authorities have launched an investigation. But according to the Lebanese authorities, they do admit that certainly what helped add to the intensity of this blast was the fact that nearly 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate is being stored right there in a warehouse right on the docks in the middle of the city. It was late June when seemingly without warning, China imposed new rules on Hong Kong, essentially getting rid of the years of two systems, one for mainland China and one for Hong Kong. The new law meant to quell pro-democracy movements and protests that had been growing. Part of the rules banning secession, terrorist activities and colluding with foreign powers. It was a striking moment heard on our podcast. Start here. Furiously, protesters in Hong Kong reacted when there was this law proposed that would make them subject to the same rules as the rest of China. They ended up fending off those local rules. But this week, seemingly overnight, the Chinese government has enacted its own rules involving Hong Kong. As without one country, two systems will stand on shaky ground and Hong Kong's stability and prosperity will be at risk. And yesterday, with no draft, no warning, China announced it had put these rules into effect. Implemented just in time for July 1st, the anniversary of the city's handover to China and a traditional day of protests. And suddenly, on paper at least, Hong Kong looks a lot more like just any other Chinese province. ABC senior foreign correspondent Ian Panels with us. Ian, can you just explain how tectonic of a shift this is in China? I mean, we have to see how this plays out, but it's hard not to see this as an end to the one country, two systems um, state of affairs that Hong Kong was built upon, that actually many people will see this as the end of Hong Kong as we know it and as we've understood it. Hong Kong's leader, Carrie Lam, who admitted last week that she had not even seen the full text of the national security legislation, said there was nothing to fear. Hong Kong is a free and diversified society. We respect differences in opinion and strive on reaching consensus. But the one country principle is non-negotiable. I think this is a revolution. Uh, This is a takeover by China. That's certainly how it's going to be seen by the protesters uh, and by a large percentage of the population of Hong Kong. But what makes me fear is not my potential imprisonment, but the gloomy fact that the new law will be the threat over the city's future and not only my personal life. The authorities in Beijing and their supporters in state media have been adamant that's not what this is about. This is about passing a national security law which was supposed to be passed by the Hong Kong legislature. No central government could turn a blind eye to such threats to sovereignty and national security. It allows them to introduce law and order to try and curb some of the violence, but it's not about changing the way of life. I think many people will see this as a radical change of life. Mainland China used all sorts of ways to exercise the so-called dictatorship in in Hong Kong. I think increasingly over the years that Hong Kongers developed a sense of nationalism or patriotism, that they did see themselves uh, more differently from China. 
They spoke a, a different dialect that wasn't spoken, broadly speaking, on the mainland, um, that they identified themselves differently, different cuisine, different way of thinking, and they had a history of independence of thought, and that has now been undermined by this new security legislation. Subversion, secession, terrorism, and colluding with foreign forces all carry a maximum life sentence. In many ways, it just confirms almost all of the worst fears of the critics that we've been talking to of this law. I and the city's freedom lovers will probably be subject to secret trial, torture in prison, and television confession. Remember, they were out on the streets just over a single a piece of legislation, which was a an extradition bill that potentially would have meant if they broke the law, they could be sent to China for trial. It didn't even say that specifically. That was enough to bring millions out onto the street. Well, this fundamentally changes things. One point of contention is that Chief Executive Carrie Lam can handpick judges who oversee the national security cases. Beijing could also override the local law in certain rare cases. There had been widespread fears that there would be some kind of Chinese mainland uh, security body that would be put into place and the details we've just got them uh, show that there will be a new mainland Chinese national security agency to be established within the borders of Hong Kong and as you said in your introduction I think many people will now say I'm sorry what is the difference between Hong Kong and the rest of China it looks like it's becoming just another Chinese city and that was 2020 told through the team at our ABC News podcast start here it was a year that was so unique in so many ways. 2020 Year in Review was produced by Leighton Schneider. I'm Alex Stone, ABC News. Have a safe and happy new year. This has been a special presentation from ABC News. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.